hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Today we host Josh Stoffergren and Supriya Sanyal from Prudential. They are the brains behind Prudential's 2012 and 2016 LGBT financial experience surveys, which we reference a lot in this show and in our writing about queer money and the queer community. This episode will give you interesting insight into how you compare to our community and the general population and share ways to make sure that you and your family are on track for financial success. Don't miss this episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. I am super excited about today's show. Again, it shows how much of a nerd I am because, <laughs> because uh, you know, some people go to concerts and they see celebrities and they're like, oh my God, I'm, I have to talk to them. I'm so excited, whatever. In June, David and I spoke at Prudential's LGBT Financial Experience Symposium and we were talking to two people who are our guests today and we uncovered in one way, shape or form that they are the people behind Prudential's LGBT Financial Experience surveys. They are the one that find all the data. And I was like, oh my God, I use your information so much. It's almost plagiarism at this point. <laughs> so it's, it's funny though, because John is not a numbers person, as many of you know. <laughs> You've been listening to this podcast long enough to know that John loathes numbers, but I love data and information. Same, at the same time, it does help him with his writing. So we want to welcome Supriya Sanyal and Josh Stoffergren of Prudential. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I like being so, referred to as a rock star. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. So either that makes you really cool or me really nerdy. <laughs> so thank you for coming on our show. What we want to do today is share with our listeners just kind of your insight as to what this data means that Prudential has been uncovering over the last few years. So b- before we dive into the meat of the information, Josh, do you mind sharing what inspired this study? Where did, where did it come from that you started in 2012? Yeah, sure. Happy to take you kind of through the history of Prudential's LGBT financial experience. So we actually launched it back in 2012. But before that, obviously, there was a lot of work done to have it ready to go to market. And we started actually looking at traditionally marginalized communities back in 2000 when we took a look at how women were saving for retirement versus their male counterparts. And from there, we had other experiences evolve out of that. So women now we've been looking at for 17 years over the course of those 17 years. Years, we started looking at the African-American community, Hispanics, Asians, etc. So back in 2011, when we were looking at certain areas that we weren't looking at, one of them obviously that came up was LGBT. So we got the idea then and, and began going out to get everything in place for a 2012 launch. So similar to what we did in 2016 when we refreshed, it was a research-driven thought leadership campaign that had a media component, had a sponsorship component, an education component, working with financial advisors, multiple, multiple layers, and also an employee engagement level as well. So we launched it in 2012 after polling individuals in in all 50 states about their retirement readiness, fears, concerns, and a bunch of different household dynamics, economic data, et cetera. You know, flash forward and we can go back. You know, we had the Windsor decision in 2013. So instead of going back out and doing polling, we did a, a white paper that looked at financial planning considerations or implications after the Windsor decision. In 2015, we did something similar with the Obergefell decision and And then in 2016, a refresh of the actual data with the 2016-2017 LGBT financial experience that that you guys have been using. That's awesome. 
can you, without going into to too much detail, do you mind, what, what does it take to put this kind of a survey together? It's pretty exhaustive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Supriya laughs. I'm tired now. Supriya <laughs> can talk maybe a little bit too about on the research side, but it's a large swath, a large cross-functional team here in corporate in global marketing communications and prudential. But having the communications aspect, having the research aspect, having the events aspect, making sure we have the right venue, sponsorships, community engagement. Going back to the very first one in 2012, this was something that Prudential had never done before. So we wanted to make sure that we were addressing it correctly from all angles. So a team was assembled in in global communications in corporate that I led, and we assembled all the right people from those functions that I spoke about. And we wanted to make sure that not only were we going out into the community to look at this community or our community to make sure that we were shining a light on some of the unique financial challenges and concerns that we were facing, but we also wanted to make sure we were addressing it in the right way and that there was also going to be a business value for it. So whenever we created the questions that would form the survey before we even went out with the survey for individuals to react to, we took it to all of the different U.S. businesses that would have a stake or input around what this might look like once it was a finished product to give input on the questions to say, hey, no, I think we should maybe ask this, or I would prefer if it was asked this way, because that would be more beneficial to my you know, captive advisors, or I would like it to be focused on this because it would be more interested around this certain element. So those types of things. And then on an external lens, we took it, had a little roadshow and took it to a bunch of our different external partners that have been doing this for longer and might be able to help us or think of something that we weren't thinking about. So we partner with the LGBT Community Center in New York. We went there and asked them to make sure that we were addressing things that they are seeing coming in and into the, the local LGBT Community Center. We went down to Washington and met with HRC. They have the Corporate Equality Index and they obviously have a lot of research, you know, the, the nation's largest LGBT nonprofit. So they gave input. And then others as well. We met with GLAD and GLSEN, I think, for public schools. But flipping it back, internally, we had the business voice. We also wanted the employee voice. So we went to our business resource group, which at the time was the Employee Association of Gay Men, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgenders, it's now Pride, but to ask them around sensitivities to make sure that we were addressing everything that employees were interested in hearing about, and then finally took it to our diversity inclusion team, and eventually Michelle Meyership, our chief diversity officer, was one of the spokespeople for the launch, but to make sure that we were addressing any sensitivities in the brochure, writing, crafting, etc. <laughs> It's not as easy as throwing something up on SurveyMonkey, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and I, I think, you know, that's uh, Josh sort of accurately captured the huge host of folks, both internally and externally, that we wanted to make sure we're giving input, not only to make sure that the information was useful, but of course, to make sure that we were being sensitive to the needs of the community not only in wording of the questions, but, you know, that we're using terminology appropriately, that we're reflecting the issues that are at play. Also, we, you know, wanted to make sure that we were adding something new to the conversation. So there was an extensive desk research aspect before we even went out and constructed our questionnaire and our survey and our study. You know, what is being said? What are some of the themes and trends that are being talked about? You know, we don't necessarily want to replicate those. We want to be able to add to the conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. I really appreciate the 
the legwork and the intent of wanting to make sure that the information is, I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but is, as you mentioned, encompassing as much as you can about the needs of the community and making sure that it's accurate as a company with the clout that you have and the presence that you have in finance to come out with information like this, you obviously have a major responsibility on making sure that not only is it accurate, but it's delivered in a manner that the community and the individuals who would use the data are represented properly. So like I said, it, it's so much more than SurveyMonkey because of the the value that it can add as well as the insight that it provides to individuals about not only themselves, but the the whole market. So thank you. Yeah, I think to me, I remember when David and I first read the 2012 study, we were kind of surprised at some of the, the data that came out. Our community has this, you know, we're mostly white, upwardly mobile gay couples who just have these fabulous lives. And the data shows that that's obviously just a figment of our, our imagination and <laughs> media stories. But, you know, there are a lot in our community who don't have it as easily as we do or are as well off. And we definitely need to address those concerns. And this kind of data helps us be able to craft those messages better. So yeah, I agree with David. Thank you very much. I will say one other thing. At the Prudential LGBT Financial Experience Symposium, one of the things that was brought up is the privileges that we have in our own lives. And it's really important that these kinds of studies be not only individuals go through the process or companies go through the process, but those of us who have the opportunity to disseminate the information do that because it's giving a voice to so many of the individuals in our community that are not being heard, that are not being represented by media, that are not being represented by sometimes even the organizations within our own community. So again, yeah. thank you. So let's take a look at some of the, the data. What stands out to you two between the 2012 study and the 2016 study? I'll, I'll throw that question to Supriya to start off. Sure. And I just want to say that we change methodologies a little bit. So from a pure research perspective, they're not entirely apples to apples. But I think the larger point is that in those four years, there were significant changes happening that affected and continue to affect the LGBT community. Josh mentioned the Windsor decision, the, the Bergefell decision, right? These are two huge, huge legal wins, I guess, for the LGBT community. So the timing of the 2016 study really you know, was aiming to kind of take a look at what is going on post these major decisions. And so one thing that we did look at and, and did see is that the rate of marriage, in fact, increased significantly between the two studies. One thing that we we saw that it wasn't new couples, you know, that were rushing all of a sudden with these decisions, but it was really these long-term partnerships that now had the freedom to, you know, express their choices and take the steps to make their family what it was in a, in a legal sense across the nation. You know, there had been pockets, obviously, previously. So I think that was probably one of the bigger changes that we saw. And we also saw more families living with children between those two years. And again, you know, that as things are changing around us in society and we think some of that has an impact in, in terms of the data that we saw. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, marriage, both marriage and children <laughs> can <laughs> completely change your, your financial life. Exactly. I mean, David was just looking at his paycheck today and he was talking about if we had gotten married sooner, we could have saved $2,600 <laughs> a year on <laughs> <Health> insurance. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's romantic. <laughs> um, what trends do you see from study to study? Are you starting to see some a more clear picture of our community? Josh? Or Supriya, do you want to take that? Or Supriya? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, to the point that you made earlier, you know, in both studies, I was not at Prudential for the 2012, but in 2016, you know, we really did work hard with our partners, uh, Chadwick Martin Bailey, to make sure that we were representing the population, the, the LGBT community at large, right? And not making sure we didn't just rest on, oh, let's talk to, you know, gay men in, in San Francisco and New York, but really making sure that we were capturing the full swath of the population. I think, in fact, at the LGBT Center, when we presented the findings, we got kudos for, you know, wow, you represented the bisexual community. That's that's never really done before. <laughs> yeah, um, we always forget the bees for some reason. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and there's different issues going on with the bee aspect relative to LNG in, in some ways. But I think that's something I'm really proud of. And I think I want to make sure that we continue to represent that full swath of the community. So, you know, with two data points, it's a little hard to say exactly what's a trend. And it's not until you get that third wave until you really see what's kind of continuing to change and in what direction. But I think what we see in, in this study and, you know, as a result of the changing family structures and we see from other data in terms of, you know, just a broader societal openness to, you know, issues relating to LGBT community that, you know, I, I see sort of just broader positive changes, you know, awareness at large of the financial issues and, and hopefully all of these things will, you know, move in a positive direction. Yeah. And I would just follow on that. Go, going back to the 2012 launch, we, you know, the cover you've seen, we wanted to make a point. It's a mosaic to represent all of the community. And to your point, there's been, you know, media narratives for years around what we call the Michael David scenario or the two upwardly mobile white gay men living in San Francisco or New York with dual income and no children. So while that is a part of the community, that's not, you know, the whole community or even the majority of the community. So how can we construct something that is reflective of such a, such a diverse community? And we did the launch last year in 2016, we made a deliberate point to have it at the community center in New York and launch it there. So there was a community voice around some of the research and, and what we were finding. And we actually had Glenda Testone, the executive director of the LGBT Center, sit on our panel and, and, and discuss the findings from, from her viewpoint as a community leader. Right. Yeah, it seems like you keep doing more and more connecting with community and more and more exhaustive analysis of the data and, and talking with people to make sure that what you're finding is accurate and representing the community as a whole. So I think that's great. Thank you. So we've addressed that the stereotype is that we're all living these fabulous lives, but the data seems to show that traditionally LGBT people, especially single LGBT people, seem to be doing not as well off as our straight peers. What's your take on that disparity? So I'll respond to that first, I guess, and, and let Josh take it after. So I think one thing that we see is the LGBT respondents are younger than the gen pop, right? So some of that, I think, has to do with greater social acceptance, that more and more people are more comfortable coming out or identifying on the LGBT spectrum at a young age, which we don't see as much in our maybe boomer population. So I think to one extent, the relative use of the LGBT community or those who sort of are vocal about and open about their LGBT status contributes to the decrease in financial status. You know, as we know, in income generally tends to go up with age. So that just relative use, I think, is a kind of factor that, fingers crossed, we will see increase as kind of this young younger generation, the younger community grows. That being said, Glenda Testone at the LGBT 
Peace Center did point out, you know, that there is a huge financial crisis going on with LGBT youth, particularly the ones who come into our center. I recall her saying many of those are youth who don't have family structures. When they came out to their family, they were, you know, rejected by their families. So that's kind of at the very extreme end. And and so then they don't have the financial wherewithal, obviously, and they're just sort of struggling to keep their heads above water. I think there's also potentially some issues of implicit bias in the workplace when it comes to, you know, getting certain jobs, maybe nothing that would be pointed out as far as a bias issue. But what we do see is that when it comes to income, we asked, you know, looking at a you know sexual orientation as well as gender, there's not only a gender gap when it comes to wages, but there's also a gap based on sexual orientation. The heterosexual males indicated the highest income, followed by gay men, then heterosexual women, and then gay women. So, you know, there's a, probably a lot of factors that play into kind of the financial status of the LGBT community at large being a little bit lower than the gen pop. So, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of work to be done on multiple fronts to try to elevate the financial status. Thank you for saying that. Both of those points that you mentioned were actually points I, I had never considered. But we have talked before, I think it was on our first episode, actually, with Jay Allen from Charles Schwab. We talked about sort of the, the boys club. And there was a study that we got from, I think, the Williams Institute that said that gay white male in the UK had to spend, what, 50? Spent an average of $54,000 more. It's 36,000 pounds, but $54,000 more to achieve the same status that his straight counterparts did. And that came from, they basically categorized that as additional hours spent at work, additional education, and the potential for having to either move jobs or delay themselves climbing up the corporate ladder because they were waiting for positions. And so kind of they basically looked at it as there is a financial cost to being in this particular study, it was being a gay male versus a straight male. Yeah, that's interesting. And I hadn't thought about the idea that probably more LGBT people who are younger are more open to being out and answering the questions of such a survey. And older people might not be so open or with themselves alone to a big financial services firm. Right. <laughs> right. And I, I think, you know, there, there is also another point that, you know, there's a significant proportion of LGBT in the community who are people of color. And, you know, we know that poverty rates are higher among people of color in general. All these issues of intersectionality kind of come into play when you think about the financial status within the LGBT community. Absolutely. And I think one of the factors that really plays into that as we look at the various groups, the individual's adversity to risk oftentimes has a a major factor in that is not only their upbringing, but their surroundings. And seeing other individuals who have taken risk and have succeeded is more likely to have happened to the individuals who are on the upper end of the economic spectrum and the individuals who most likely are coming from non-disadvantaged communities. Whereas those individuals, I think, primarily transgendered women of color who, as we've said before, earn about $10,000 a year on average, are coming from a community where they don't have the opportunity to take risks. And so the rewards are just not there and to help them balance out or as a population increase their income. 
Absolutely. So it does seem to be that there are some systemic problems for our community to help get ahead financially. But one of the data points that I think came from the 2016 study that Prudential did, that you all did, always stands out to me, and I reference it quite a bit, is that 48% of queer people identify as spenders relative to 32% of the general population. And that just blows my mind. <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> Supriya, what's your take on that? Any ideas? <laughs> you know, I, as an ally, I, I don't know. I have the best answer for that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think just from a purely yeah, sociological perspective, the rate of marriage and having children is still a little bit less within the LGBT community than within the straight community. So, you know, as you pointed out earlier, having children sort of necessitates your thinking about spending and saving in a different way. So some of that may be related, but I would just be speculating. <laughs> Josh, do you have any take on that as a, as a member of our community? <laughs> no, I think with in terms of, you know, the, the data and how that's represented in the survey, I think it's not necessarily that everyone is saying that they're out spending on vacations or luxury goods. It's that they're spending out of necessity and that they want to save more, that retirement is a concern for them, but because of their day-to-day bills, they're not actually able to get to a point where they're able to save. So that's something that is a goal for them, but at the initial, you know, day-to-day, they're focused on just getting by and paying their bills. That's interesting. That's not a perspective that John and I have talked much about, but it is, I think, an important one, especially if you look at the lower end of the economic spectrum, that there are individuals who don't have a choice to save because of their income, that all they can do is spend to meet their necessities. So I appreciate that you highlighted that point. I also will say that because so many of us in the LGBT community tend to gravitate towards the urban core, because that's typically where we feel more comfortable. We know that over the last, I would say, maybe five to 10 years, the costs of living in the city have skyrocketed in so many cities around the country that, again, we're being pushed to the point where we can't save. Yeah. The cost of living is definitely increasing in some of those major pockets, yes. Denver included. Yes. <laughs> no I think you know, that, that raised an in- Go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say to that point, you know, I think when you mentioned what are some sort of interesting findings just in general, and I think what we did see is, and, you know, again, we made a concerted effort to really represent the population at large, is that we didn't really see a concentration in the big cities to the extent that we would have thought based on, you know, media representation and, you know, just the sort of general conventional wisdom. But, you know, hey, guess what? Gay people live everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, at least now, you know, in, in 2016, as our, you know, broader societal changes are hopefully occurring in a positive trend, hoping that people in the LGBT community are starting to feel more comfortable living places outside of, you know, just these big metro areas. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say as well. I think working with this and, and with our financial experience over the past five years, I think that that was true in 2012 about fleeing to the coast. But I think with change and with the Windsor decision, with the Obergefell decision, and more acceptance in general, I think you're actually seeing, and not just LGBT, but rates overall of especially younger people leaving larger cities for different parts of the country that might not have historically been a destination for individuals. I like that you bring up that point. It is counterpoint to what I was saying. And it's interesting, John and I, one of the posts on our Debt Free Guys blog that is consistently seems to get significant traffic is one that's about affordable 
gay cities around the country. And, and we specifically highlight cities that are not top tier, large metropolitan areas. And I think that that's, as you mentioned, more individuals are either gravitating towards that or feeling that they're okay and comfortable staying in those locations. We actually just updated that, that article is about three or four years old. We just updated it because we had decided that we had to take Denver out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's no longer an affordable city. <laughs> but I'm not there. <laughs> so Priya, you'd mentioned you know when you have children, typically that kind of forces a couple to get their finances in order or become a little bit more attentive to their finances. Oftentimes, data comes out that shows that couples, LGBT couples, tend to do better financially than individuals, LGBT individuals. Do you think the same psychology is at play there that when two people get together, whether they're opposite sex or the same sex, that they start to take things a little bit more seriously? I think that that's probably true. You know, the fact that in whatever gender your partner happens to be, now you're sort of making decisions for two people and, and thinking maybe a little bit more long-term than when you're a single individual. And of course, when you have children, hopefully you're thinking it's even a little bit more long-term. We know that in family structures, often having children is a big instigator for buying life insurance, right? So I think that's one of the many kinds of decisions that does become more serious and, and you start to think about those kind of longer-term decisions when you are thinking more than just, you know, my individual single self. I don't know that Prudential has done this or, or if this is out there. Do we know what percentage of the population yet of the LGBT community is married? Our data said that there was about a third that was likely to be married. That is, I think, a little bit skewed by the bisexual population who's most likely to be married and not often, you know, sometimes to opposite gender, sometimes the same gender. But rates among so I think it, it follows sort of bisexual men and women have the highest rates of marriage, followed by lesbian women and then gay men. I think about 16% of gay men with the lesbian women, it was a bit higher, 20-something. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting data point. Yeah. Hmm. Women are more logical. Because <laughs> <laughs> across the spectrum. So... In your study, I saw that you know, many in our community use the words when they describe their finances, worried, nervous, anxious, uncertain, unsure, and depressed, and they admit that it's due to a lack of saving and preparation. How does that compare to any studies that you might have done with the straight population, Supriya? I would say that everybody is worried and depressed and anxious. Um, you can take so, solace so, in our community. Right. <laughs> so I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's limited to the LGBT community. You know, finances can be scary. I think what we did see in the data is straight community is a little bit more likely to say about on average 10 percentage points more likely to say that they're prepared to make wise decisions among different aspects of their financial lives. That being said, it's not, you know, an overwhelming amount who says that they're very prepared. So, you know, I think that anxiety is pervasive and is one of the things that cuts across, you know, all your various aspects of your identity, be it your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, your age. You know, most people are pretty scared when it comes to their finances. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And do you mind if I ask, what defines wise? Did you provide wise decisions from a financial services firm perspective, or did you just use the word wise in their description? Just a wise, you know, do you feel like you're prepared to make wise decisions? So the spectrum of what that means could be different depending on the individual. But, you know, overall, we get the sense that very few people, however they define that, feel very prepared to make wise decisions. Gotcha. 
I know that in our personal finance community, this is a struggle for any niche that you can think of, LGBT people, straight people, women, men, whatever demographic you can come up with. And I'm sure that Prudential must struggle with this. If the general population continues to say year after year that they're struggling and they're stressed financially, from your perspective as financial services professionals, what can Prudential do? What can the debt-free guys and queer money do to simply help anybody feel better financially? I can start with that. I think too, with the 2016 data, if you look at product ownership overall, gen pop is, is a little higher than, than the LGBT community. And I think it goes back to education. And a lot of what we do at Prudential with our brand campaign is look at small steps that you can take today to make a bigger impact later. So I don't know if you've seen any of our commercials, but most of them involve some kind of behavioral finance or experiment to illustrate to individuals what they need to be doing to help get them on a path to a secure retirement. Our current ad that's running now is called Walkways, and it launched earlier this month in September, and it actually features a, a gay couple, two gay men. It talks about the conversation around couples talking about how much money they think they're going to need in retirement, and it's actually an experiment. So they talk about how much money they need, but don't tell the other person, and then they actually walk along a plank or a board game that lights up for every step they take and it represented in years. And then it, you see the difference of what the individuals think. So in no, none of the couples illustrated do both couples agree on how much money they think they need for retirement. So that's just our most recent one. We've done others that show compounding interest over time and how if you save just 1% more now, what that would look like in the future. And that's all on our, our television advertisements but we also have online digital tools that can help you assess what you think you might need for the future for retirement that go a little bit further than a generic retirement income calculator. So I think that, you know, instead of looking at, oh, I need this number, this is the number I need for retirement, I think you need to look at it rather instead of like an accumulation phase, you want to look at it as decumulation and look at it, what a paycheck would look like or what that number would look like monthly for the rest of your life. And I think that depends per person, right? So if you are going to retire in Palm Springs, that might be different than if you're going to retire in Louisville. And do you want to go out to dinner five times a week or is going out to dinner more like once a week? And what kind of car do you want to drive in retirement? So if you start asking all of these very specific, very individual questions, I think, you know, each scenario is going to result in a different number or different outcome that you might want for retirement. And then how do you, you know, what is the gap from where you're saving today to what you need to get you to that point? So things like that. I will say, Josh, that I pulled John over to my computer when I saw that commercial, because <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't know if someone had shared it online or exactly how I saw that, but I pulled him over and I said, I was proud because we have worked with Prudential and in the past. And I'm very excited to see when companies take that risk and go out and show individuals of our community. Obviously, it's we're at the very beginning of companies being able to do that or wanting to do that. But I was excited for that partly because... I personally feel that one of the reasons why our community, and I think your study brings this out, one of the reasons why our community feels that they need more knowledge is because we haven't seen ourselves in the traditional model of preparing yourself for financially for your future. Vast majority of the time when we are seeing materials coming from firms talking about planning for your future, you see the 
white gray haired couple walking down the beach holding hands. And that is the picture of retirement. And so we haven't really seen ourselves in that model. And I love the fact that you and a few other companies are actually doing this. And we're at the forefront of this. It's There's still a long ways to go, but I appreciate it. There's a risk in doing that. There's still backlash for companies that support our community. So definitely, I want to underscore what David was saying. Kudos to Prudential for taking on that risk and doing the right thing. But you stole my next question. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, so how can we get the LGBT community's attention more specifically? I do feel for a number of different reasons with the different companies that we've worked with and the stuff that David and I do on our own as Debt Free Guys and through Crew Money, that it's a little bit harder to get our community's attention than the general population. So, Josh, do you have any thoughts? Is David right? Is it more about branding or is there more that we can do, do you think, to to get our community's attention and try to help them get on the financial track? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's about branding or if it's a combination of things, but to your point, I think you want to be able to see yourself, right, in the situation. And I think historically, advertisements around retirement have been the Adirondack chairs or yachts or the gray-haired folks walking on the beach. And that's not what everyone looks like, and that's not what everyone's retirement looks like. So, you know, when we think about creating awareness around the financial challenges individuals face as they plan for retirement, we want to you know, our goal is to reach a broad cross-section of the population as possible. So whether that be in advertisements, whether that be in earned media, whether that be in our educational campaigns, but I think in, in general, whether you're gay or straight or whatever you are, I think you're still having concerns around your future, around your retirement, and how might we be able to address that. So going back to the behavioral finance, we've actually done research that shows whenever individuals think of themselves in the future, think about what they might look like in retirement, they actually see a stranger. So they're not actually envisioning themselves in that place. They can't really get their head around, okay, that's 30 years, that's 40 years in the future, that's me, I need to be saving for that. So we've actually done different things to help address that, one of them being an aging tool. So if you're sitting down with us and or your financial advisor or whomever, you can actually age yourself to what you would look like when you retire to try to make yourself or see yourself in that space that will then click you know something on and say, oh, hey, that's me. I need to be taking control of my financial future. I need to be saving more. And then going back to the retirement tools, very specific examples of what that might look like for you and how you can get there. So do you have like this magic mirror that makes me look older? <laughs> it is. It's a sort of Hollywood magic. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I don't. That sounds kind of scary. <laughs> but do you have one that can do the exact opposite of that? <laughs> it is interesting though when you when you do think about yourself in the future, because I think that so many of us we look back to ten years ago, twenty years ago for those of us who can think back that far. And we didn't picture ourselves being where we're at today. Mm -hmm. And we didn't picture ourselves looking the way we do when we look in the mirror. And it is important for us to think about the life changes that will happen before we get to that point of when we're ready to relax and enjoy what we've earned. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I think the boomer generation is totally changing the definition of retirement. I mean, retirement, I think the picture that we have is typically (laughs) was defined by a population of people who would stop working and probably 
pass away within the first three to five years after they were done working. But now people are living in retirement 20, 30, 40 years, and they don't want to just sit on the Adirondack chairs and watch in the ocean, although I do. <laughs> but mostly, you know, we know several older people in our, in our own lives who just, they have more energy than we do. They're always going to things and doing things, and they, they want to be active. They're contributing have part-time jobs only because they want to or they're donating their time. So yeah, I think that definition is changing. So I think it's great that Prudential is trying to make that look a little bit different visually. Yeah, and not only are longevity rates increasing and people living longer in retirement, right? But retirement itself is changing. So those individuals you're talking about worked for one company for 30 years, retired, are receiving pension or had a defined benefit, but the actual system has changed too. And now the primary savings vehicle through an employer is a defined contribution plan. So I think that, you know, there's education around the generations in the workforce now about how they need to be taking control of their own retirement instead of waiting for a paycheck from a employer, there are simple things that employers can do to help adoption rates and increase savings, et cetera, through automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, automatic rebalancing that can make defined contribution plans more like defined benefit plans of the past. And and in previous generations, they were more likely to say, you know, my social security is, I'm just waiting until my social security kicks in. Well, we know that that's probably not going to kick in into a significant (laughs) amount for most of us who have yet to retire. Exactly. The other consideration there is, even if we do get it, the amount seems to be kind of stalling out what people can get from Social Security. And we've talked about this before with other individuals on the podcast that even a couple that did work stable jobs throughout their lives and contributed regularly to Social Security can only expect anywhere from about two to four thousand dollars in today's dollars can't imagine how that will shrink if we think, you know, 20, 30 years ahead, that may not be an, even enough to cover a car payment. <laughs> <laughs> it's important who you vote for. <laughs> so, so I've seen this similar information in several studies, but it is definitely called out in your study, in Prudential study, that people who have a financial advisor tend to be better off financially. And the question I've always had is, what comes first, (laughs) doing better financially or having the financial advisor? Sabria, do you have any insight from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a little bit hand in hand. I think many people feel people who are either younger, don't have what they think is a sufficient income, feel that a financial advisor don't won't even speak to them if they don't have enough, right? So when we ask, why don't you have a financial advisor? And they say, well, I don't make enough money. People, I think, are a bit, little bit self-selecting when it comes to working with a financial advisor. That being said, those who do go to a financial advisor, even if they start off with less, you know, certainly reap the benefits. So, it's a little bit chicken and an egg, but I don't think it has to be. I think sort of we try to and are, are trying to do more to help people understand, you know, that these are trained professionals and, you know, they are really here to help you make the most of what you have, whatever you have. For most of the financial professionals that I've met, they indicate that they're very mission oriented, that they they really are in the business of wanting to help people and really helping everybody kind of make the most and, and really get set on the path to a financial secure retirement or whatever, their, meet their financial goals, whatever they may be. And I would just add, too, from the financial services side, back in 2012 when we started this, we actually asked individuals how a financial advisor approached them about you know, LGBT-specific planning, and 9 out of 10 said no. So I think there was also education needed on the other side that the LGBT community is a market that advisors should be listening to, should be paying attention to. And obviously, I think that's changed a lot in the past five years. 
Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. On the, the financial advisor side, I think a lot of times advisors feel, well, I'm not in this community or that community, so I'm not sure if I am the right person. And what we hear from a lot of consumers is that, well, it doesn't really matter. The financial advisor doesn't need to look exactly like me as long as they kind of understand who I am as an individual, my specific concerns. And so part of the reason we actually do these financial experience studies and and all of this consumer work is to help our advisors get educated and, and to be able to bridge some of those perceived gaps in knowledge. Yeah, I think that's important. When I think about all the professionals that I use, they don't all look like me whether it's my doctor or my dentist or anything, you know, they all look different. So I don't know why we shouldn't necessarily make that a litmus test that our, our financial advisor looks like us. And I'll also add that David and I know of several organizations and I know the center here in Denver, Destination Tomorrow in the Bronx of New York City. They do bring in financial advisors and bankers from different firms to help people who are a little bit afraid to go into financial services firms or banks themselves, try to bridge that gap and get them started financially. So if you're uncomfortable going into a bank or a financial services firm, there are other options to start building a relationship like that. And it sounds like it can't hurt <laughs> no matter what you do. Right. I just will ask an individual who is just starting out can work with someone at Prudential, correct? There is a path forward to getting themselves off the ground when it comes to making progress financially. Yes. For Josh? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was, yeah, I was just saying yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It sounded like you gave us a little bit of a prelude earlier. What's next for Prudential's LGBT financial experience surveys? Can we expect more information coming out anytime soon, Josh? Actually, I'll let Supri answer that. Oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, starting this year, we've actually moved to a slightly different model of research where we are actually collecting data. Again, you know, as we mentioned, we have our LGBT financial experience, Hispanic American financial experience, Asian American financial experience. African-American women, you know, it's a lot of studies. (laughs) Um, So this year we're moving to getting data against all of these audiences all at once in a total market approach, which will allow us to gain a lot of efficiencies from a research standpoint, but still allow us to get an understanding of each of these individual groups. But, you know, allows us to not only think about one aspect of people's identity, right, and and allow us to draw greater comparisons across different populations and and think a little bit more holistically about people, who they are, and and what their financial needs are. Interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how everybody compares and contrasts and what sort of um, trends are kind of in all those groups together. I think it's great. What is Prudential doing in response to these surveys? You're finding all this great information. I know David and I are using it our own way, and there are other personal finance bloggers and other professionals using it their own way. What's Prudential doing with all this great information? I can give a couple examples. One, you know, we're arming our captive advisor force with the, you know, glossy brochures that they're and the data that they're able to then go out and and talk in the community with this information. We're also partnering with some of the organizations that I mentioned earlier. So one of our strong partners is the LGBT Community Center of New York, planning events with them, whether it be on education or financial awareness, financial literacy. Most recently Earlier this month, we partnered with the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists Association to host an event at their national convention where we had around 200 journalists to just talk about what Prudential is doing from a thought leadership perspective and how they might be able to utilize some of the data that that we've been collecting in their stories or coverage, and then also to just educate them on some of the things that we're seeing that they might not be aware of that might be you know of interest to their readers or viewers. Awesome. 
That's good. I think it's very important to share this information in, in as many places as possible where we can find receptive audiences because it really is about changing the way people think about themselves and about their money that will provide that progress forward and, and make the changes that they themselves will make the changes that they want and need so they can have that better future. Well, thank you, Supriya and Josh, for joining us today. This has been, like I said, you, I think you guys are rock stars. So this has been very cool. I appreciate it. And I know David does too. So thank you so much for taking your time and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you both. This was fun. Thank you, Josh and Supriya, for sharing your insight on the financial health of our queer community. Thank you also to Prudential for making this investment in our community and giving us information that can help improve the lives of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Thank you also to our listeners for listening to another episode of Queer Money. There are two big takeaways from this show. The first is to start talking about your finances. Whether that means with a partner or confidant or engaging with your financial situation on your own, start talking about your money. Secondly, find a financial professional who can help you navigate the financial world. It can be complex, but doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Whether you find someone through a local LGBTQ center or in a prudential office or elsewhere, find help. Studies show it helps. If you'd like this or any other Queer Money episode, please remember to comment on, like, and share Queer Money in iTunes so that we can get Queer Money in front of more people. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> Would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead, I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end, I like the butts. So. <laughs> yeah. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.